Let's pray together. Father, we gather here this morning from a variety of places and trajectories and stations of life, and some of us are sick and we need your healing presence in our lives. Others of us are in need of work, desperate to find employment suitable for our needs and our gifting. Some of us are grieving over the loss of a loved one or grieving over a death. Others of us are just numb. We're numbed by life. We're bored. Father, wherever we come from this morning, what binds us all together is that we are all collectively looking for a home. And more specifically, we're looking for a home in you, whether we're, not, whether we're ready to admit that or not. Father, would you, as you do in this passage, would you hold yourself out as the only adequate home that any of us could find? We have so many devices and so many ways to compensate for our inner loneliness, our inner fears, our inner anxieties. We cover them up. We cover them over by trying to be competent, trying to be good enough, trying to measure up, and we don't. And Father, it leaves us anxious and worried and sad and lonely. So Father, would you step into our stories afresh? Would you help us to meet you? Would you help us to see the provision of the gospel, that Jesus is all that we need, that he will fill our cup? We pray that, Jesus, you would come and do that now again. We pray in your name. Amen. Now, just as we've done uh, the last couple of times, we are jumping right into the middle of a rather extended prophecy. So let me give you a little bit of background so that we can get our bearing. Habakkuk is asking a series of questions to God. We could even say interrogations. He's confused about why God is not paying attention to Israel, or more specifically, Judah, any longer. And he says in verse 1-2, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, and you do not listen? Now, who hasn't asked this? Who, which honest quester among us has not asked this question? How long, O Lord? Why do you stand so distant from my fears and my life? And some of us ask this, are unsatisfied, and then turn away from God entirely. But Christians ask this too. God, where are you when I'm hurting? Where are you when my spouse is hurting? Where are you when my life seems to be spinning out of control? Now, Habakkuk is asking this question too. And not to belittle those questions that would concern our personal private lives, but he's asking a different set of questions. He's asking for the nation of Israel, for Judah. He is saying, how long, O Lord, will you ignore what is going on in your own people? Don't you see there's violence and conflict and injustice and no one respects your law, even within your very own chosen people? He's challenging God, in fact, holding up God's word to him and saying, God, are you ignorant? Are you not paying attention? Don't you see what's going on? Now, by the way, this type of questioning is not condemned in this passage or anywhere else in Scripture. In fact, he's picking up on language that David uses in the Psalms. When David is distraught and he is saying, God, how long, O Lord, are you going to stand idly by? Here's your word. Here's what you've said you are about, and I don't see it happening. How long will I have to wait? 
It's not imprudent to ask those questions. God welcomes our challenges to him when we do it in a way that is respectful of his word and honors who he is. Now, God answers him. God answers Habakkuk. How long, O Lord? Here's what he has to say. Look at the nations and be utterly amazed. Those Babylonians, that impetuous and ruthless people, feared by everyone, your enemies, in fact, I'm raising them up to sweep across Israel and to cleanse her of sin. And you can just feel the life go out of Habakkuk. You've got to be kidding me, God. You're going to use those people to purify your people? That impetuous, sinful, ruthless, murderous horde? You're going to use them to purify us? To chastise us for our sin? I know things are bad, but you can't be serious. He says back to God, your eyes cannot look upon evil. You can't tolerate those evil people. Certainly you can't condone those who are evil, swallowing up those who are more righteous uh, and those who are yours. He's perplexed. He's confused. He's saying, "God, God, you have set us apart as your righteous people, and now you're using this evil, murderous horde to purify us. It doesn't make sense. And for him, it kind of gets into the problem of evil. Why is there evil in the world? Why is God allowing this to stand? Why is God, in fact, directing this? Now, he doesn't get a satisfactory answer to the larger problem of evil. evil. Some people ask that question, ask why God stands idly by, and they turn away from him. And some turn in. Some see the problem, see what is evil going on, and they find no other resource but God himself, and they turn in. And that's what Habakkuk does. He turns in. He says at the end of chapter 1, I will stand at my watch and wait. I have not received an answer that is satisfactory for all of my demands and all of my questions, but I will stand and I will wait. Now, he waits for God's timing, but he doesn't waste time. He doesn't waste time. He actually continues to pray. He continues to lean into God. He continues to offer God questions about why he is doing this and what it would mean. And in the passage that we read before, we see God answering Habakkuk's second question, his retort, his follow-up, if you will. How can he use the Babylonians to bring judgment? Now, God agrees with Habakkuk that the Babylonians are evil people. They're terrible, rotten people. And he begins to offer Habakkuk a sort of cultural analysis of Babylon. He analyzes what is at the root of Babylon's sin problem. Now, as I read earlier, you probably weren't saying, yep, I do that. That's something I struggle with. You know, one day I would really like to stop burning down cities. I wish I could cut down on pillaging Those sort of things just don't enter into our equation for the most part. At least, I don't think they do. You can talk to me afterwards if they do. But what lies at the root of their sin does strike close to home. Maybe we don't don't pick up a torch and burn down a village, but we understand pride. We understand delusions of grandeur. We understand seeking glory for ourselves. We're going to look at two things after that rather lengthy introduction. Two things in this passage, delusions and deliverance. Delusions of grandeur grandeur, and then 
deliverance from them. So first of all, delusions. We're going to look at sin as a sort of delusional thinking. The Babylonians are a rotten, rotten people. And God is telling Habakkuk exactly what's wrong with them as a culture. And while detailing a number of different societal evils, we see him draw these sort of behavioral expressions down to the root cause, down to the source. Now, we are finally, hopefully, maybe coming out of this long extended recession. And you've seen people throughout the last three to four years try to point fingers and assign blame. And you see sort of two different narratives of what happened and who's to blame. And you probably align yourself with one of these narratives depending on which media outlets you tend to choose. And they sort of go like this. One is that it's the fault of the greedy, corrupt capitalists. They are enriching themselves on the backs of others. It's unrestrained big business and greed that's at the heart of the problems, and that the government didn't do enough to step in and curtail their greed. So there's one cultural narrative, or that's one narrative of who to blame, why we're in this mess. And the other one is kind of exactly the opposite. It's that government overreach, overregulation, that government is involved in far too many things and far too many places in our lives. And that's the reason for collapse. That's the reason that we got into this mess. You see, we're looking for someone to blame, to place the blame squarely upon, and we're not willing to bifurcate or differentiate or maybe combine and say both and rather than either or. Either or. And the Bible, you see, as we read this passage, is not that simplistic. It doesn't bifurcate in that way. 6 through 20, we read a series of woes listing out the Babylonian sins. And what do they include? Greedy business practices, oppression of the poor, degradation of the environment, and also an absence of personal morality, an absence of strong families, that there's a great deal of sexual sin going on. So you see, there's plenty for either side of the political spectrum to say, yes, that's what's wrong. It's that one thing, but God says, no, these are expressions, and they all matter, and they're all important, but they're actually signal signals of a deeper problem going on. We can't just say, look, that's it. That's the problem with the culture. It's that expression. It's that behavioral pattern. God assigns the blame differently. Do you hear verse 4 and 5? See, he, that is Babylon, is puffed up. He is arrogant. He is never at rest because he is greedy. He is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. And then in verse 16, he says what they're looking for, what they've used this power and this violence to try and find is glory, glory to cover their shame. Does that sound familiar? Can you identify with that? Maybe not the behavioral expressions, but certainly seeking of glory to try and cover an inner shame, an inner restlessness. There's a sense in your heart that you're never at ease that you don't sleep well, that you're anxious, that you're worried because there's something amiss in your heart. The center of the problem is a cultural pride and hubris masking a deep insecurity. These things always go together. Pride and arrogance and an inner sense of vulnerability, of shame and restlessness. In other words, we become prideful, puffed-up people 
to guard against someone finding out that we really don't have it all together. There's a deep inner emptiness. And sin creates this sort of delusional thinking, and it wreaks havoc in our daily lives, in our workplaces, in our relationships. The Babylonians were a murderous culture, ransacking other cultures, burning down cities, something most of us probably haven't done, at least not recently. But don't we understand what it's like to be never at rest, to be truly at ease, to never be satisfied? One of my favorite uh, film directors is Michael Mann, and he directed uh, Collateral, The Insider, uh, Manhunter, which is an older one, but his magnum opus in many people's mind is the cop drama Heat. And Al Pacino plays the cop, this driven cop that's chasing down bad people. Uh, one of them is Robert De Niro, his, his nemesis in this movie. Al Pacino is on his third marriage. His daughter doesn't know him, barely will tolerate him, barely talks to him. He drives his crew, his fellow policemen, to the very limit because if he's willing to go the extra mile and work 24 hours a day, they ought to be willing to as well. And he puts chasing down criminals above everything. And that's one of the reasons that makes him such an interesting character in the movie. But his wife confronts him, his third wife, and in one of those deeply honest moments, he says, all I am is what I'm going after. All I am is what I'm going after. That's why I disregard my family. That's why I've walked out on two spouses. That's why I drive my people so hard is because I am forever questing. I am restless. I am as needy as the grave. I never stop. There's an emptiness at the center of life, and he's trying to clothe himself with glory. Clothe himself with glory. He is never satisfied. You may relate at never being at rest, never being able to accomplish enough, finding that one big deal that you seal it for your company and you have that moment of euphoria, and then a few hours later, a few days, you're seeking it again, over and over. We can never gain enough glory to compensate for this inner restlessness. So we negotiate with things that we think is going to cover our shame we think can bring us glory. And we say, if you will give me a certain payoff, I will give you every bit of myself. I will prostrate myself before you, whether it's drugs, drink, sex, food, work, whatever it is, we will be willing to bow down to those things and worship them, even if they will just pay off just a little bit. For the Babylonians, it was burning down cities. For you and I, it may be a bit more pedestrian. The reason that we pursue things to our peril and the reason that the Babylonians burned down cities is very different but essentially the same. It's that we prostrated ourselves before something other than God and it's left us empty and restless and ever-questing. The Babylonians conquered and killed other people. and We may not kill others, but we kill ourselves. Kill ourselves by overwork trying to cover our shame. We kill our relationships by trying to force them to meet our needs. And this is fundamentally, as the Bible talks about it, Habakkuk talks about it as an issue of misplaced worship. 
We're trying to squeeze meaning and significance out of things that were never designed to provide meaning and significance at that level. The biblical term is idolatry. And we read in verse, four, uh, verse 18, of what value is an idol that someone has carved or an image that teaches lies? For those who make them trust in their own creations, they make idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. It seems so logical, doesn't it? It seems so easy. It seems so apparent. Why would anyone do that? But our, our idolatry is not a wooden totem or a bronze serpent, but it's no less insidious. Ours is more sophisticated and subtle. We worship being perfect parents or pleasing our parents, raising faultless children or being faultless children, making good grades or making big deals, getting the right friends or getting into the right school. And these things become idols that own us and they'll never deliver what you're expecting them and hoping that they will. God says these things are images that speak lies. They are lifeless stones, and yet we continue to make deals with them. We continue to negotiate with them. And they keep saying, a little more, a little more. This time, if you do it, this time, if you seal the deal, this time, if you get your parents' approval, it will make all the difference in the world, and it never does. What we are saying, friends, when we think this way, ironically, is we are saying that I deserve transcendence. I deserve glory. But we get it by prostrating ourselves to things that will never come through. We're puffed up and yet utterly dependent. We're proud and yet degrading ourselves. We become codependent towards a thing or a person, all the while saying I'm the most important person in the world. We think we deserve the world and yet are willing to degrade ourselves to try and get it. We want glory and yet we demean ourselves by becoming codependent. It is the most ironic, sad cycle that all of us go through. Marilyn Robinson, who's one of the great authors of our recent few decades, says, the first obligation of religion is to maintain the sense of the value of human beings. If you had to summarize the Old Testament, the summary would be, stop doing this to yourselves. But it is not in our nature to stop harming ourselves. We don't behave consistently with our own dignity or with the dignity of other people. And the Bible reiterates this endlessly. You see, friends, what God is saying is obey me, but not simply so that he can get your allegiance He wants to spare you and I the agony. He wants to stop us from harming ourselves and harming others. But learning this can be grueling. And coming to the end of ourselves where we can finally say, I've had it with this cycle. I'm not going to do this anymore can be utterly exhausting. Perhaps the most haunting verse is one uh, in verse 13. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing. Do you see what he's saying? Is that you are made to worship me, and insofar as you misplace your affections and your worship, you will continue 
pursuing and chasing things until they absolutely exhaust you. It's written into your humanity. You weren't made to worship these other things. You were made to worship me. And so I've written it into your DNA, into your humanity, that it will be exhausting. And yet we continue to persist. I haven't been able to corroborate this, but I read many years ago that in Nazi Germany, the Jews were made to move piles of dirt from one place to the next, and then back again, and then back again. There was no point. You know, sometimes they would have them move dirt to build a railroad track, and there was something that you could see. Even though it was for Nazi Germany, you could say, I have finished this, and I'm done. I've completed the project. But what they had them do was not build anything, but just move dirt from one place to the next. It was exhausting. They figured this would be the most tormenting activity imaginable, and it was. And that's what this passage is telling us, is don't exhaust yourself for nothing. Don't keep moving dirt back and forth. God is not vindictive. He's not seeking to harm you, but he's wanting to rescue you from your own futility. He says, look, I've made you. I know how you work. I know what makes you tick. I love you endlessly. Would you trust me on this one? Would you hear me on this? Don't exhaust yourself in futility. Don't forever keep moving dirt. Woody Allen was asked at the Cannes Film Festival a few years ago when his movie, You Will Meet a Tall, Dark Stranger, was coming out. And he was asked about the grim perspective that that film had, and particularly, particularly that film, but also all, many of his films. If you've watched Woody Allen, there is kind of this undercurrent that's very dark, very foreboding, a very negative idea of, of human nature. And he says, I, I do have a very grim perspective. I do feel that it's a grim, painful, nightmarish, meaningless existence. And the only way to be happy is if you tell yourself some lies. One must have some delusions to live. Now we, as a Christian, may look at that and say, well, of course, that makes sense because he's not a believer and he needs to create meaning. But we all do that, whether we're Christian or not. We tell ourselves lies. We tell ourselves one more time, one more time. This time I will be happy. This sale, this grade will make me significant. We must have delusions in order to live. We must delude ourselves in order to stay happy. And God says, I want to give you a different kind of dignity altogether one that doesn't come from your internal machinations, one that doesn't come from your strength internal, one that doesn't come from your moral value that you add to the world, but one that comes from him alone, one that comes from outside of you, that is completely out of your control. But first, we must see our delusions. So he says, stop doing this. Stop living by this delusion of grandeur when I offer you the real thing, the thing that will still your heart, the thing that will put an end to this endless, ceaseless striving. And what's that? What's the answer? It's deliverance. We must see delusions. We must see the delusional aspect, the way that we think about our lives, the delusion of sin, and then we must be delivered from it. Verse 4, see, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. 
but the righteous will live by their faithfulness. In the early 1500s, Martin Luther was not yet the the great Protestant reformer that is world famous and respected and so forth. He was just a, a Catholic monk who was plagued with guilt and a lack of certainty that God really loved him. He had started law school and then disappointed his father by not going and becoming a monk and going to seminary. And he saw God's approval as pretty much like his father's, that if you did the right things, that if you did your duty, that if you obeyed, then God would love him. But he knew that he could never do enough and he couldn't obey enough and he couldn't keep his duty. And so God's approval was always hanging in the balance. He never knew. He couldn't be certain that God really loved him and was really on his side. And then he came across this verse, which is, Uh, quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans. He gets it from Habakkuk, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness. Now in Romans, it's a little bit different because Paul is reading the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the grammar is a bit different, but the idea is very much the same. The faithfulness, even in the Old Testament, doesn't mean moral steadfastness. It doesn't mean proper performance that the faithful people, those who are most morally upstanding, will live by faith. That's not the idea. It's not moral steadfastness. It means trust. It means dependence. It means clinging to God for your very life. It means life itself is by God's power and not your own. The Babylonians were puffed up, or even better from the Hebrew, lifted up by themselves by their own resources, by a false reliance, which doesn't lead to uprightness of life, but to crookedness, to delusional thinking. But the righteous see God as the sort of life. And what Martin Luther saw in Romans is absolutely here in the context of Habakkuk, that life is not given as the reward to what we are or what we're becoming or for anything that we possess, but rather life is given to faith. Life is given to those who by faith look to Jesus alone, that God gives life through his son alone and no other place. Other things point to him, other things augment your experience with him, but they can never replace him that Jesus is the only one that can be your center, that can be your ultimate life-giving source. Live by their faithfulness describes the manner of the life of the righteous, not the means of becoming righteous. It's a result of, not a root to. Do you understand? The faithfulness is the manner of life, not the means It's not what you offer to God and say, please love me in return. It's the life that you live because you know God's love will never end and is unstoppable and is a controlling, transforming force. That's faithfulness, is trusting in that, trusting in God and his resources and what he can do in your life rather than what you can do to try and earn his favor. Faithfulness is a result of, not a root to the life-giving presence of Jesus, and that makes all the difference. You see, those who are puffed up, those who say, I deserve everything, gets nothing. Self-reliant people, supposedly, 
Those who claim self-reliance, those who seek to be in control, become utterly dependent on things, on people, on aspirations, on acclaim. They become utterly dependent, and those things become faith objects. And it says, like death, they are never satisfied. They can never conquer enough, never buy enough, never earn enough to be content. And therefore, they're forever questing and restless. And Woody Allen's statement couldn't be more apropos, that we must have some delusions in order to live by. Those who say, I deserve everything, get nothing. But those who say, I deserve nothing, get everything. Habakkuk and the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself say that you don't try to become righteous in order to earn God's love. You are made righteous because he loves you. That he declares you righteous through your faith. It is by his grace that he reaches into your life and grants you an eternal standing before the Father that is unmovable, irrevocable, and that's the center of your life. That becomes the thing that you are forever longing for and worshiping and prostrating yourself before because it's the only thing that won't ultimately let you down. Jesus says, I will take your shame and clothe you with glory. I will take your inner emptiness and give you my fullness. I will take your restlessness and sleeplessness and give you true eternal rest. Not because you've done anything except trust me. Your faithfulness then is dependence upon clinging to that promise, clinging to that hope, clinging to his righteousness that has been given, donated, granted to you. Friends, when you begin to wrestle with that, when you begin to understand that, the more it becomes rooted in your soul, then, then, and only then, you won't have to use others or debase yourself anymore to cover your shame. That's Jesus' job. That's what he says he'll do for you. So rest. Be at peace. Sink yourself into his love and his eternal healing presence in your life. Let's pray. Father, there's so much here in this passage that we just glanced over. But I pray that as we have looked at what you have done in the gospel, your redemptive presence and promise that we have done and talked about and learned what is most central. Father, I pray that we would rest in this. I pray that we would uh, long to understand it more fully, long to be more fully aware of your eternal promise and the eternal hope that we have in Jesus. Father, I pray that if we are here still wrestling with this truth, would you step into our lives as well? Would you answer our questions as we seek you? Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.